This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. Offered in print and digitally on totalfood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. This week on Meet in 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. Brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that was so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round uh, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand, look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I speak to an amazing woman who I admire for their strength, their innovations, and their all-around badassness. I have the perfect example of exactly that with me today, Nancy Silverton. Nancy, welcome to Speaking Broadly. Oh, thank you. Everybody probably knows Nancy. She is a Los Angeles and all over America and the world icon. You probably know her from her Netflix show, from her restaurant, the Mozart Restaurant Group, Nancy's One James Beard Awards, and I'm obsessed with your gelato line. So right now, she's published a brand new book called Kispaka, which we're going to talk about later. You have had such an extraordinary career that I've followed very closely. One of the things that has struck me is how you are at the nexus of food, humans, and news for such a long time. Can you take me back to the 70s? Because it's food that I've read about. It's restaurants that I wish I was at at the time. You cooked at Michael's with Jonathan Waxman. Let's just start there because the idea of the two of you in that same kitchen, knowing you both now, I just have to hear like, what was that like? Well, you know, I just want to go just a little bit back further. And that is that wasn't exactly the start of my cooking journey, but only by a few years. I started cooking in my college dormitory, ended up dropping out of school, ended up enrolling in the Cordon Bleu in London, and returning to Los Angeles. And that's when I started working at Michael's Restaurant, shortly after it opened, where Jonathan had just become the chef. Actually, Nancy, if you want to go back that far, let's talk about how much you didn't like baking. It wasn't that I didn't like baking. I found it very scary and I felt that I had no talent there. And this is what came out of the strict teachers that taught me at the Cordon Bleu, who made pastry seem like if you took any chances, you would fail. And so don't even try. And so because of that, I had more of a fear. And I never, ever thought that that is where I would end up for the amount of time that I ended up. And to this day is still my comfort zone. But that came later at Michael's where Jonathan actually hired me to work in the pastry 
kitchen. And pastry kitchen is a very generous term for the corner of a tiny kitchen, but we'll call it the pastry kitchen. So Jonathan had just been promoted to head chef. And I worked there for close to two years with a break going to France to study and hone my skills a bit. And then I opened up Spago. So I was the opening space to be chef at Spago. I am curious how you went from that fear to saying, I mean, I'll try it and then getting really good at it. Like, what did you discover when you were at Michael's about what had held you back and what could propel you forward? You know, what I understood from this mad genius, Jimmy Brinkley, was that pastry had a lot of opportunity to be flexible. You just had to understand a few of the basics. You had to understand that eggs would curdle at a certain temperature. You'd have to understand that if you forget to add the leavening to a loaf of bread, it's not gonna rise, you know, certain things. But once you understood the basics, there's so much room for creativity. And that's what I learned. Taking that job again was just to get my foot in the door. I knew for some sixth sense that that's what you do. If you want to work somewhere, you do whatever they need you to do. Jimmy created a whole nother world. And as soon as I started working with him, I could tell I found my niche. Do you remember the first pastry that you created that was all your own? So, you know, that's so interesting because like right now is a moment where a lot of people are redefining who should be getting the credit in what they created. And what's interesting is I've always started out that way that nothing is original. To say that somebody is not giving credit, then you would have to be giving credit to every single thing you've done. So every single thing I do today is a derivation of what Jimmy taught me, I'm sure. And some of the things are so good that I wouldn't change him. I wouldn't change my pot sucre. I wouldn't change my proportions of my crème anglaise. I wouldn't change the buttercream. They're too perfect. And Jimmy learned them from the most well-respected French restaurant at the time. He was the pastry chef there. It was called L'Hermitage, and it was with Jean Bertrand, and he brought it back from France. It's like to trace that lifeline or the, the DNA or genealogy of every recipe. You can't do that, and all you have to say is that what's great about being in a restaurant and what's great about writing cookbooks and sharing recipes is you help future generations just get better. But I remember when I was at Michael's, I was given the challenge by a guy that had a winery called Acacia Vineyards. And what he had been hosting for a few years were these pate holiday buffets. And he would invite all the top chefs from Los Angeles to contribute a pate. And he asked me, he said, I've never done this before, but would you put a dessert in this category? So I'm like, sure, I'll do it. And I thought, 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 and I thought, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make a chocolate pate where I do it in a tureen mold, and then I slice it thinly, and I'm gonna stud mine with raspberries, and blah, 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 and I make this tureen. And it couldn't have been a week later that probably in Food and Wine magazine, they wrote about a chocolate terrine that somebody was doing in France. So every time you think you're doing something, quote unquote, original, somebody else is doing the same thing somewhere else. <laughs> that's, that's a funny story. So cooking in LA in the 70s, and early 80s, what did it feel like? What was going on? Because you know, there was this feeling that there was something going on then, but then there was like a dark period where very little happened. Is that inaccurate? Completely accurate, because that dark period, meaning that the rest of the country thought, 
what's LA, coincided to when I opened La Brea Bakery and Campanile. So we're talking 1989, early 90s is when all of a sudden LA fell off the food map. But prior to that, so we're talking about 79, early 80s, interestingly enough, I was living in Northern California and I had just discovered Chez Panisse and it is the restaurant, the food, the philosophy, the temperament that really put me on my path and I've never gone off. But that restaurant was really all that anybody was talking about but it was LA that had Mame's Zone. Michael's had just opened. Ken Franklin had been at Le Toque, but there was a lot of chatter about restaurants in Los Angeles. And that's why I moved back to Los Angeles. I preferred the lifestyle and many things about Northern California, but the restaurant scene, there was not that vibe. So I came back to Los Angeles because of that vibe. I want to just pause and go back to Northern California for a second, because when you were there, there were amazing women cooks, right? I mean, Barbara Tropp, who I adored, obviously Alice, and Judy Rogers, an extraordinary chef. And I'm wondering, like, what do you think brought all these amazing women chefs to the fore? I'll never forget when I got to Spago is when the press started to follow me because that's when I was the head pastry chef. And I'll never forget that when I started getting the question, what is it like to be a woman in the kitchen? I didn't understand the question because I didn't know that there was an issue or a problem or maybe not everybody had as a seamless experience as I did. So when I thought of who are my favorite cooks, right? In the world, oh, Alice Waters, Judy Rogers, Barbara Tropp, Joyce Goldstein. Still, I could go on and on on the women. So that when, when that was first posed to me, I'm like, not only is there an issue about being a woman because I never worked in a kitchen where it wasn't okay to be a woman and I had to prove myself, but I already knew who my mentors were and they were all women. So California is an anomaly, right? I guess, but their influence was national. They were nationally recognized. And then again, it feels like they're at least media wise, I'm not saying it's reality. You know, there was like a dark time. The next generation of extraordinary heralded women chefs took took a while. So well, we were talking about being a woman and being in the kitchen and one of the challenges there can be motherhood. So what was it like to be a mother and cooking at Spago? I didn't tell Wolfgang and Barbara that I was pregnant until about five or six months because I, I didn't want to say to anyone I was pregnant. Not that I was trying to hide it. I don't know. It's just one of those things that you don't say anything to anyone until you have to. And so when it got close to the time where I'm like, I think I better say something, I told Wolfgang. And he was like, oh, so you bring the baby to work. And that's exactly what I did. I had Vanessa on my day off on a Thursday and I brought her back with me on a Tuesday and it never stopped. Did that seem a little crazy to you? And in retrospect, does that seem a little crazy? Or are you like, yeah, not really, I'd do it again. Well, yeah, I would do it again because of my personality is that I'm not, and I really have found that during COVID and when I was forced to quarantine for the idea of staying home was difficult. I've never done that before. And so I would not have known given how much time a newborn sleeps, right? I don't know what I would have done otherwise. 
And it wasn't that I was in full work mode again, because I couldn't be being that, I couldn't focus, you know, if I got in the middle of a project and then I needed to attend to Vanessa, I didn't want to drop what I was doing. So I was there more to observe and more to supervise and help a little bit. But I probably would do it again. I sometimes felt badly that I've never given myself that time just to learn how to relax. But I don't know, for me, it's being around a stove and being around people is so much a part of my life that it's hard not to do that. Right. And I think that part of that is your relaxation, right? I mean, some of what you do is very meditative. Just watching you make bread is meditative. So I don't know what it would feel like doing it, but it just seems like you have that. It's Maybe it's not relaxing, but it's an action that can take you out of yourself. It, it is very relaxing and very meditative. Mainly, I make things that are by hand and not necessarily plugging in equipment. So I love uh, making pestos in a mortar and pestle. You know, I find that very meditative. I love slicing things by hand. I find that very meditative. So those are not techniques that I would give up to a high-powered machine. Sure, I use a commercial mixer to knead my dough, but I love shaping my dough by hand, you know, things like that. But so it is very meditative, and I do get that time to meditate and to be reflective, but it feels like I need my hands to be at work. They need to be doing something for my head to work correctly, if that makes sense. You and Mark ended up leaving Spago to start your own restaurant and you ended up opening La Brea Bakery, which was a game changer. There was a little stop in the way and that was we were brought out to New York by Warner Leroy to try and change the menu at Maxwell's Plum. It didn't last even a year. We got there in August and we left the job by March. And I don't regret doing it by any means, but it was not a positive experience. It was one of those institutions where Warner wanted to change and make it his East Coast version of Spago. That's why he lured us away from Spago. But then all the clientele kept asking for a lot of the old dishes, you know, and he would bring us into the office and it's like, you need to put the coconut curry back on that menu. And soon we saw that menu changing from us to them. And it was like, you know what? I think this is not going to work out, you know? So it didn't work out, but I loved, loved, loved living in New York, even though I had two small children. I would leave for work around six o'clock in the morning. It was uh, pitch black. I would walk to work. It would be pitch black when I walked home at seven o'clock. I would lay there on the couch covered with chocolate. I'll just never forget this. My three-year-old walking around me and my infant like on my chest asleep. And yet I loved, loved, loved New York so much that our intention was to open a place. We found a location in Soho and we packed our bags and we went to Italy for a month. And while we were there, and I had never spent time except for as a backpacking teenager in Italy, and having a house and having a kitchen and cooking and buying food at the roadside stand and understanding just the spirit of simple cooking and the importance of fresh ingredients, we just couldn't imagine living in New York at that time, which would have been like 1987, 88, something like that, where you couldn't find produce three quarters of the year. So while we were there, we thought, you know what? We can't open in New York. It's gotta be California. 
And that's how we ended up back in Los Angeles and on to Campanile and La Brea Bakery. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back momentarily with the extraordinary Nancy Silverton. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. From day one of the COVID-19 crisis to today, the focus of Total Food Service has been to listen to the needs of their restaurant and food service readers. They were stunned by the endless stream of heartwarming stories. Restaurants everywhere were stepping up to feed hospitality workers and first responders while nimbly converting to takeout and delivery options. Total Food Service coverage has now moved to the planning forward stage. Offered in print and digitally at totalfood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Need answers and solutions? Find them at totalfood.com. Nancy, welcome back to Speaking Broadly. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've heard so much about your obsession and I've witnessed it in the things that you make, but I'm just wondering when did you feel the power of obsession or just the need to perfect and test and try and test again come over you? Is that something that was nascent when you opened your own restaurant or had it been inside of you before? Well, I've always been obsessed, but I didn't know. And had somebody told me I may not have gone through with it, I didn't really understand how much more challenging working with something alive, meaning bread, for other people it would be cheese and obviously wine, how challenging working with something alive is and throw away all of your knowledge from everything else you did. So I figured, okay, I figured out how to make what I think is the perfect chocolate chip cookie. Therefore, I'm going to learn how to make the perfect baguette. So that was really very stupid thinking. I'll let you know. So when you say, when did I become obsessed? I became obsessed out of fear from all of my failures. So came back and looked for a restaurant location. And then I signed up to go back to France, to go to cooking school, to learn how to really make a loaf of bread. And when I had gone to cooking school, when I was at Michael's at Le Note, at that time, all the classes were in French and I don't speak French, but I didn't need to know the language because I understood all the processes. So I could tell what they were doing and why they were doing it and why their method was so much better than the methods I were using. And I thought that would apply to bread. But first of all, it doesn't because there's so many scientific things you need to know about bread and you do need to know the language. So I came back with tasting and eating great bread, but I had a stack of recipes I came back and I started to work out of a catering kitchen of a friend of mine, and I baked one disaster after another. And that's when I realized this is going to be a difficult road. And it was. It was extremely, extremely difficult. I had to take a couple deep breaths, and I had to realize, or the most important thing I realized at the beginning when it pertains to bread or anything alive, is how important not only the environment is, meaning what's in the air with the different wild yeasts and bacteria, but temperature and moisture, humidity, all that kind of thing, but how important a role flour played in perfecting a loaf 
and I couldn't bring back the weather of Paris or French flowers, and therefore their recipes were not useful for me. And here I had this $100,000 bakery designed, almost ready to go. I did grow a starter. I did like, I don't remember, eight or 10 experiments, and that's what they look like, experiments. And one of them looked like, all right, I think this could make a loaf of bread, and so I kept that one. And I really went from there. And I talk about this a lot in my bread book where I say that, you know, the good and the bad of it is this. Back in 1989, which doesn't seem like that long ago. Well, now we're really talking like 88 because it was before we opened in 89. There weren't the bakeries to get advice from. And there certainly was not the books that there were to turn to as there are now. Like now I say there is no excuse to make a bad loaf of bread. There are so many books. There's so many bakeries to knock on the door of. You do not have an excuse. But I had an excuse, See, I, I, I gotta tell you. But I think what was great about it is that I really taught myself how to do it. And you know, I have my old books and my old notes and I would start out with four cups of flour and two tablespoons of starter. I mean, I still have those, you know, and those four tablespoons and, and a couple ounces turned into hundreds and thousands of pounds of what I started with. But I think that what would have happened is I would have missed out on that learning process. And what was just so rewarding to me is so many things that I came up with because of experimenting were things that were really tested in scientific knowledge. So let's suppose I was trying to figure out how much salt to put in a white loaf of bread, sourdough white loaf. And I tried 50 ways, you know, and I finally came back with this amount of salt is the perfect amount. And then years later in looking at a book, I see that my recipes are exactly what the scientists say, which is add no more than 2% salt. And it's like, oh, so not only did I teach myself, but I challenged a lot of these scientific theories that turned out to be correct. You know, when you look back at it, you can see why that actually was a solid, good way to go. But when you were in the middle of it, did you want to give up? I'm curious, like what character trait of yours is it that helped you get through all those failures? You know what? It's the challenge. It's the challenge. Now, move ahead to, what is this, 2020, and we're all stuck at home longer than we want to be, and so we're buying all these crazy things online, and I'm seeing these like dresses pop up. It's like, I've got to find that dress. And there I am on my phone looking at every single website to find it's the same thing. It's like, <laughs> it's some sort of drive in there in the middle of your chest that just forces you to keep on going and i wouldn't give up i mean there were a couple days in there where i pulled that blind down at the bakery and turned the open sign to shut because the day's bake was just not acceptable to me but it really was that challenge and it was a challenge that you couldn't be rewarded, you know, when you made a change and figured out instantaneously because, you know, all these breads fermented and whatever, If you, you had to wait 24 hours. So it was sometimes difficult, but it was that drive. And, you know, now when I see people that don't have that drive or cooks that I work with, I want to just say, find it, don't give up, make it happen. Because I think that is probably for me, one of the most exciting aspects of all sorts of cooking, whether it's baking or braising, is to try to perfect it and make it better. So 
you you and Mark eventually sold the restaurant. And what was that like? Because I think you had said that that was the first time that you you weren't working. Right. Well, I stepped away from it, actually, before it was sold. So Mark continued it for another, I don't know, three years or four years. But walking away with it, I think it was one of those things that I was ready to walk away with. There was too many emotional aspects to it that didn't involve cooking, but life emotional issues, that it was just time for me to walk away. So it actually felt like the right thing to do. And so therefore it wasn't hard to do. Was figuring out what would come after that tricky? How did what's next present itself to you? I knew there had to be a what next because I wasn't ready to retire. I found it pretty quickly after I stepped away and it was after a simple lunch at my house with Jeremiah Tower. I was so scared about what am I going to cook for Jeremiah Tower that I took the easy road which ended up being the high road and I had just been at a fresh cheesemaker and I had all sorts of mozzarella and burratas and things like that. And so I just made a whole table full of condiments to complement this fresh cheese. And we sat down and had lunch and it was just such a wonderful, wonderful lunch. And he was thrilled and I was thrilled. And at the end of the lunch, he said, you know, when you go back to Rome, you need to stop at this new restaurant called Obica. It's basically a mozzarella bar and they basically do what you're doing. And I'm like, I'm there. And I went there. I'm like, all right, I, now I know what my next project is. I am going to open up a mozzarella bar. And did you have, because you've brought up fear a couple of different times in different ways. I mean, were you afraid that that next thing wouldn't present itself to you? Or were you pretty confident that if you gave yourself some time and some space, it would arrive? Well, I knew I wouldn't do it until I knew what that was. I knew I wasn't just gonna open another restaurant, that there had to be a focus, but I didn't know what that focus was. So I remember reading with horror that Bernie Madoff had swindled a large number of people, some of whom I knew, and then I discovered that you were one of those people. And I feel like that Bernie Madoff story and your reaction to it is the essence of resilience. So can you tell me where were you when you found that out? Yeah, I, I know where I was, and I'll tell you why, because of the circumstances. So I was in a car. I had just left Oliveto Restaurant. That was Paul Bertoli's restaurant, where I had lunch in Oakland, California. I was with two other cooks, and we were headed up to Meadowood, and then I was gonna take the two cooks who had never been to the French Laundry for dinner. So I'm in the car and I thought, I think I'll call my dad. And I called my dad and he said, you've just lost everything. I'm like, everything was that? And then he tried to tell me. And first of all, it was a shocker. Second of all, we all went to French Laundry anyway. And third of all, it was just after a Pizzeria Mozza opened in November. And I have to say that I know that I said to myself, wow, I am so glad I have a job and I have a paycheck. Because that was the truth, that I had all my money in there. But I was working again and I did have a paycheck. But you didn't dwell at all on the loss. This is, I've, I have read that story, of course, and I'm like, how did you do that? I mean, I get the celebrating because that's like, why not embrace the moment? But no anger, loss, like how did that happen? I have to start again. No feelings like that? There were several aspects. Okay, one was my father always said to me, 
you should only put money in an investment if you're willing to lose it. And you have to take responsibility for that. And I think that's true. My accountant was like, this, there is something wrong with this. You, you cannot be making that big of a return. It's just not right. And so I, I, I have to hold myself responsible for not being realistic and being a gambler, because that's what it was. It was gambling. It was saying, okay, you can make this much return, but is it gonna hit you back in the face? And which it did. So that was one thing, you know, I had to take responsibility that this was not reality. The other thing is, is that pretty soon into this, I had just taken out a lot of money out of that account to be able to pay my taxes. And my accountant told me right away, you don't have to pay any taxes. So I did take out a chunk of money that I was gonna be okay with. And then it, the information came back really soon that you know, there was gonna be a lot of tax breaks in there that you wouldn't have to pay taxes for several years. All this, you know, look, I tried to take the bright side of everything. Yes, I did lose a big chunk of money. So let's talk about Kispaka. One of the things that I love about the, the book is as the restaurant has a great mix of beautiful meats, there's also fantastic salads and snacks and dessert and vegetables. So tell us a little bit about the birth of that restaurant because it, it had an unusual coming into existence story. Yeah, it did, as well as the book. So as far as the birth of the restaurant, so for the, those of you out there that haven't been to the corner of Melrose and Highland, a lot of food writers now call it the Mozaplex. So they feel like it's easier to write about one restaurant, but they're really very, very different restaurants. The Osteria is a more traditional restaurant with the menu devised so that you have three courses and, and the pasta plays a very important role, the pasta course. At the pizzeria next door, it's very pizza-centric. There isn't any pasta. We have a lot of antipasta there as well. And that's what we operated for the first handful of years is the pizzeria and the osteria. And then the space next door to us came available, and we thought we should really take this because somebody else is going to. We thought that the best thing to do there would be to open up takeout where people could take out pizza. You know, pizza is the best takeout item there is probably, but the space was too big for just a takeout. And so we at first created the front half to be a cooking school, thinking we would do pizza and pasta classes and that would be great. And then we still had a quarter of the space and so I decided to build a little retail shop where I could curate what I think are the best imported ingredients and then also give people a little eye candy, meaning all these little jarred items, for when they came in to pick up their pasta rather than walking into a stainless steel kitchen and waiting for their, their pizza. So we did that for a while and we, we taught these classes and that was great, but we could see that the need for them was sort of dwindling and we needed to figure out what to do with this space. And so our chef at the time, Chad Colby, he had the idea because he was he was experimenting with curing salamis of opening up a little chakrutri evening at Spaka a couple nights a week. And so that was the first thing that we started to do was to open up this little chakrutri. We did pickles, we had olives, some 
glasses of wine and I was very pessimistic. I thought it wasn't going to take off, but it did. So we decided to add a aspect of, of what they were doing in Oliveto restaurant one or two days a year, which was they called it a whole hog dinner where Paul Bertoli was bringing in a whole pig, butchering it, and then everything at that menu was about that pig. And so we started to do that, and that was extremely popular. And so we added up another night where we thought of something as opposed to doing like regional wine dinners or something like that that was so typical. We would do celebratory dinners of celebrating an ingredient every month, and every course would have that ingredient. And again, everybody sat family style, super su successful, so much to the point where Chad convinced me to turn the whole space into just a restaurant. And that's how Key Spaka came about. So we modified the kitchen and turned it into what we called a butcher-friendly restaurant because we didn't know what else to call it. But as you said, there's fish sauce options, lots of salads, lots of vegetables. So it isn't a meat-only restaurant, but all the recipes are reflected in, in the cookbook. What are your favorites for people to cook at home? Well, I think definitely the smaller cuts, like the bone-in short ribs and the lamb shoulder chop. Those are really good. We did give recipes for what people think of as our signature dishes there, one of which is a focaccia from a small town in Liguria where the focaccia is not the focaccia that we know of as a yeasted, raised, soft dough. This is one that's much more like a strudel and has to be cooked in a special pan. I mean, that's the bring back dish to people at Spocking. You know, every restaurant has to have that dish where people say to you, I had to come back because I had to eat this, right? If you don't have that dish, then you don't have a successful restaurant. So that focaccia from Recco is that dish. And so there's very, very detailed instructions on how to make that. I think that some of the whole roasted vegetables are are really, really fantastic because we do a lot of those in the oven and I've kind of figured out a way to um, mimic that at home by cooking these vegetables right on the floor of your home oven. So not on the rack above it, but right on the floor to get that extreme heat like you would in a wood-burning oven. So I think the, a lot of the vegetable preparations are great. I think the salads are really, really good. You know, with all of my books, and I have to say I have 10, and the key spaca is very different than anything I've ever done, but I think the salad chapter in here is just terrific and very different from salads that you find in other books. Yeah, I was excited by the salads. I actually am going to go out and buy the cauliflower to do the cauliflower pickle and the butterscotch budino, which is something that I miss and I would fly across the country for. I'm so happy to have the recipe. And then the pork and veal meatballs are on my list. Let's just talk for a second about your salad theory, because I feel like you actually have a salad theory. You know, some people think like, oh, it's salad. You put lettuce together, you toss it, you put some dressing on it. But you really believe in layering flavor and layering your salads, which I think is such a good technique to talk about. So can you share like, what is that idea? Sure. So besides a chopped salad, and I'm very well known for my Nancy's chopped next door at the pizzeria, which everything is cut into the same size basically so that when you get a forkful of it you're eating all of the flavors that should be eaten at the same time 
but if it's not a chopped salad like that, but if it's a salad that has things in it, what happens is you throw it in a bowl at home and usually you toss it in a bowl that's too small and so it's too overcrowded, but you toss it up and all of the things, the ingredients fall to the bottom. And if they don't fall to the bottom, they're in different places in the salad and you don't experience the whole flavor. But when you build your salad, and I always talk about building a salad in three layers, and you layer those ingredients in each layer, then you can't help that with every bite, you get what, at least I'm suggesting, are the combinations that you want to eat in that salad. And then with the salad, you have to take into consideration what is the consistency of the dressing compared to what as your lettuce. So if you're doing a very fragile lettuce, say a farmer's market mescaline salad with very tender greens or, or just arugula salad, your dressing has to be a thin dressing. You don't want that to be, say, a blue cheese dressing. Not only would it just clump and weigh it down, it would just be a soggy, clumpy mess. But if you have a very sturdy green like escarole, you might want a thicker dressing or if it's a thinner dressing, you want to toss the leaves of that escarole into a bowl big enough that you can actually massage the dressing into the, the crevices of the leaves of lettuce because there's nothing worse than a overdressed salad next to a underdressed salad. So an overdressed salad is bad and an underdressed salad is bad. So, you know. And then there's also other tricks. You always want to season your lettuce with salt. Even though there's salt in your dressing, you still want to season it. And that goes back to the seasoning every layer like you're talking about. And for all of my salads, I first squeeze on, even if it's like a lemon vinaigrette or something, I first squeeze on a fresh cut lemon and toss that juice with the lettuce. It always brightens it. And salad always needs acid. Okay, I'm going to take advantage of a really awkward but fun transition here, which is that you mentioned two words, architecture and dressing. And Nancy, I am not alone in being obsessed with your wardrobe. And you once said in an interview that understanding how you dress is understanding who you are. And you're not saying it as a general proposition, but just for you yourself. So tell me when you said that like to understand your dressing is to understand you, what did you mean? Well, to understand me is to understand my salads too. And I think my salads look like my dresses. I know that I cook better when I feel better, when what I'm wearing feels like me. And I know I can mark the time when I think my food got better is when I took off my checkered pants, I unbuttoned my white chef's coat I put on a dress, threw on an apron over it, and I just felt like me. So at the end of each podcast, I ask a pair of questions. One of them is, is there a woman in the culinary field who you feel deserves more attention and more recognition? And if so, who's that person? Oh, well, see, right away, I'm gonna go into my own home, you know? Um, I think that the chef of the Osteria, Liz, her mother owns probably one of the most popular Korean restaurants in Los Angeles called Park's Barbecue. You know, really what she does, because I'm no longer a line cook, she puts on the plate all of my travels, my stories, my inspiration. And she does that for me. And she's just has a great palate. 
And, you know, she too is not a person that her skills are built on fancy equipment. We are just the basics. We have stoves and ovens in this restaurant, and that's what our food is made from, and she is able to do that. And to be able to work with somebody like that is just so important for a person like me who wears a lot of hats now. Some people are very difficult to collaborate with or they don't get you. She knows me, she gets me, and so she knows. If I say slice a carrot, I don't have to say it needs to be on the bias. She knows it needs to be on the bias. If I say roast it, she knows that that means it needs to have color, you know, things like that. I actually am also inspired. I went out and bought carrots after reading your cookbook, and I loved how you you have two ways that you do carrots. Like, they're either roasted or they're, like, very gently cooked. And I'm like, ooh, you know, maybe I'll try, like, one of each. In any case, the, um, the last question, is there any product or piece of equipment that you think that more people need to know about? Like, something that you find to be magic, but that other people maybe haven't tried or heard of. A lot of, of my favorite tools, let's say, are ones that it's not that people are not using them, but ones that I really rely on are things like microplanes in different configurations and also mortar and pestle. I am such a mortar and pestle person because I love being able to finish something with a pounded sauce. I mean, it adds so much, and no matter what that sauce is, whether it's a pesto or a romesco or a Middle Eastern chili condiment, they're all made in pestos, but just a spoonful on top of something is just such a perfect way to end it. So Nancy, has been such a delight catching up, and I love this conversation, and I cannot wait till I land in LA make a beeline to Pizzeria Mozza, get to see you again. And for everyone who's listening, one of the extraordinary things that separates Nancy from so many of her very talented peers is Nancy loves to be in that restaurant and cook. You know, you might not be on the line, Nancy, but you are present and you're tasting and you're haggling with the guy who brings you the greens and like you just you know every second of every dish and every nuance and I just like I love it what can I say I love it and I am making dinner from your your book I went out and bought the ingredients today and I just suggest that everybody go do that Nancy thank you and thank you everybody for listening um I love having you guys get back to me with feedback things that you love things you don't and I'll be back again next week so have a great week Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. 
Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.